0: Listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I invite you to continue worshiping by opening your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Peter. This morning we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Uh, Just want to say how much of a pleasure it is to finally be in your midst. Uh, I have prayed before, uh, for you, before I knew you. Uh, Many years ago I got a phone call from your pastor telling me he was leaving Kansas and he was going to Chicago (laughs) and he was going to start pursuing the idea of planting a church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And It was my joy to hear that and to follow your journey from afar and just praise God for what he's doing in your midst. Um, your pastor and his family are very dear to me. I've known your pastor since high school through college. Uh, we had the same major. We are in almost all the same classes. We both played basketball. We both played various sundry other sports. Uh, If you're hoping for more information, um, I just want you to know, I'm sorry, I had to do a non-disclosure agreement (laughs) before getting to come here this morning, so if you talk to me sometime outside of this week, maybe we can get you some more information, but no, I, I am glad to be able to come and open the Word with you this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and read together in verse 9 of chapter 2 of Peter's first epistle. But you are a chosen race. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct or your lifestyle among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are so good. We come to you this morning with heavy hearts, God, a lot of things that have gone on in our lives this week, even maybe this morning in our striving of getting ready and getting to church, God, our our hearts have been all over the place, and this morning we want to submit ourselves to your word. We want to come and behold wondrous things from your law, and that seeing those things, we would go away changed, looking more like the image of Christ. Would you do that for us this morning? It's in your holy name we pray, amen. Who are you? It's a weird question to start off a service, but imagine if someone walked in this morning and walked up to you and and they asked you, hey, uh, who are you? You What what are you going to answer that question? Uh, how would you describe yourself to someone, or better yet, maybe how would someone else describe you to someone else? And generally, we we talk about some personal things like our name, like oh my name's Josh, it's David, Sarah, Myra. Um, our relationship, maybe like I'm their husband, I'm their wife, uh, I'm the father of that kid that's running around screaming. I'm their neighbor, their friend. Uh, Maybe an accomplishment that you have. Uh, You know, he's fast, he's tall, he's smart, he's good-looking, he's rich. Um, It could be some action that you do on a frequent basis, a position you have. I'm a lawyer, I'm a construction worker, a college student, a software developer. How do we describe ourselves that way? And and maybe even this morning we could ask ourselves, how would someone describe Docs at church this morning? If someone were to be talking about that, the people of Spartanburg, and they're trying to inform people of what doxa is, how would they do that? Would they say, like, it's a service or a building? You know, it's that church that meets over there in that upward facility off of 29. Is it a social event like a club like this? It's really fun. I have this life group that I go and I hang out with people and I do things. Maybe it's a ministry that sticks out, like it's an amazing worship experience. They have a great program for kids. We play soccer there. We do all kinds of things. And maybe they would describe it as a museum, like it's a a relic of a gone time past of, of things that people used to do. Well, why are we talking about who we are? Like, What does that matter for us? Well, who you are is important because your identity leads you to your purpose. If you're not sure who you are as the church this morning, it's going to be really difficult for you to determine the kinds of things that doxa is supposed to do. Our identity always leads to the imperatives of what we are. And it's interesting that that's how the Bible always works, right? Like in the Old Testament, you see, you are the people of God. Therefore, do these things. When you start reading through Romans or Ephesians, you have these rich chapters of doctrine at the beginning that talk about you in your election, and your justification, and your sanctification. And because of those things, here's a list of things you should do in your relationships with other people. Here's how you should live out the reality of your identity. And so Peter this morning is writing to this group of Gentile believers as elect exiles who are under attack. The the people reading this passage have been scattered and persecuted by the government in Rome. In fact, you may have always heard the fact that Peter is writing to those persecuted by the emperor Nero. I mean, this is not just your quasi like people speaking bad things about you. These are marriages that have broken up. These are friends and family who have left the body of Christ and started doing something else. These are people who are scared of their lives and wondering, is this whole faith thing really worth it? And Peter talks about how this persecution is working towards something. It's purifying his church in order that they could be more of a gospel witness. And he's going to give us some some tasks this morning or tasks to the church that are wrapped up in who they are. Peter goes back to their identity to talk to them about how they're supposed to walk this Christian life. So, so notice first in verse 9, he, he goes to that identity by comparing those who are not believers. He says, but you, and he's talking about the ones who were in verses 7 and 8. Peter discusses those people who had rejected Christ already. And, and they've stumbled. Why? Because they disobeyed the word. And Peter contrasts that with his audience of mainly Gentile people and he calls them a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, it's interesting because all of these terms are used in the Old Testament to describe the nation of Israel, God's special people. In fact, this whole passage is pretty much a paraphrase of Old Testament passages. Exodus 19, 5 through 6, specifically for this section. But Peter here applies this to these people who were formerly not God's people, but now have become God's people because they trusted in the work of Israel's true king. And so he begins with a chosen people. The the Greek word here is two words. It's electon, where we get our English word election, and genos, where we get our word genes or or genealogy. It, It just means a chosen people. They belong to God because he chose them. This is how Peter opens his book in chapter 1. He says, "Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those elect exiles of dispensation to Pontius and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia, why according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience of Jesus Christ for the sprinkling of his blood may grace and peace be multiplied to you." We this morning primarily as an identity we, we often try to link our identity to our own successes. We try to say, okay, we're a church that has these kind of things. We're these kind of things. I've done these accomplishments. I've had this family. I own this business. I look this way. And that's how our culture typically defines us. But our identity and our value this morning as believers is not wrapped up in our abilities and our accomplishments. But instead, our Christian identity is wrapped up in the finished work of Jesus Christ. God looks at you and I not because we're something worthy to be uh, had, but instead because he chose us from what we were and made us this new people of God. Our identity doesn't negate those associations, but it always supersedes them. Our worth of Christians is not tied to what you have done or deserve. God looks at you this morning and he doesn't say, man, what an amazing week that person's had. They read their Bible every day. They gave a sandwich to that poor guy. They managed not to kill their children and ended up at church this morning. And you know what? Man, how worthy they are. I'm so glad they came this morning as my chosen people. No, our valued identity is simply because God is gracious and merciful. Secondly, you're also a royal priesthood. This should draw your mind back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. What did priests do? Well, well first off, priests were the one, priestess, priests were ones who offered sacrifices of repentance to God for the people. Outside, they were at the altars daily and that they were offering sacrifices for the atonement of sin. And once a year, the high priest would enter in to the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the altar so that God would forgive the people their trespasses against him. And Israel's priesthood was wrapped up in that ability to help ask for forgiveness for sins. Not only did they ask for repentance but they would also lead the people in praise of God's character. Israel's priesthood was to mirror to the nations the glory of Yahweh so that all the nations would see God doesn't have a rival. They would lead the people in temple worship similar to we were this morning and the people would just exalt the name of God. And so he says here that priests are basically what we are. So we are to pray for repentance and we are to praise God. The idea of royal that's used here is generally described as as a royal residence or a palace. And I think what Peter is getting here to this morning for us is you and I, we're not like those other priests. You see, those other priests could never come into God's presence. Once a year, one dude could turn his back to God's presence and sprinkle some stuff. He'd have bells on his feet in case he turned around and fell over dead. They'd know to drag him out. Like, that's how serious God's presence was. His holiness could not endure sinners in his presence. But you and I, because of the work of Christ and the swapping of our righteousness for Christ's righteousness, are now royal priests who can enter into the throne room daily and freely to both praise the Lord and to ask forgiveness for our sins. We're never in a neutral zone now. We're always in the presence of God because his spirit dwells within us. That's why Paul says, don't you know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That's where God dwells, is in you. So work yourself out as priests. Your life is either fully in spiritual service of worship, or you're not. This is what 1 Corinthians 10.31 means. When he says, whether you do whatever mundane task you have, you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You and I are not just a chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. And then next he says, you're a holy nation. Great, political messages. It's that time of year again, right? Well, you see, I would just remind you that the church is political by nature. Preaching is a political proclamation of a kingdom authority. Baptism is political. It's an an oath of allegiance to a new king and a new kingdom. The lordship of Christ is political. And you're declaring that Jesus is greater than my allegiance to anything else. So let me ask you a question this morning. What holds more important to you? Your identification as a citizen of the United States or of South Carolina or your citizenship in heaven? Don't get me wrong. I, I love the United States of America. I bleed red, white, and blue. You know, my, my parents love America. My grandfather fought in Normandy. My other grandfather was a Iwo Jima. Like, hoorah. But God is not a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian. He's not caring so much about the freedoms that we enjoy in our government. And, and while it's good to protect those things, ultimately our citizenship is in heaven, He is a king and he's made us a citizenship of the greatest kingdom that is. This is a phrase that's used in the Old Testament to call on God as his covenanted people. The idea of holy is something that is set apart. It's perfect. It's unique and pure for a purpose. This is while Paul addresses Gentiles as aliens and sojourners and exiles. Hebrews says that we are looking for a better country. Our citizenship is in heaven. We, as God's body of believers this more, have more in common with a Russian or a Chinese or an Iranian or a Mexican who's a believer than we have with someone of our own political party who lives up the street in South Carolina. We are part of the kingdom and nation of God. We are now new and holy, and our allegiance is to Jesus Christ and Him alone. Lastly, He says, You're a prized possession. A, a People indicates that it's not just an individual thing, like this sermon isn't about just you, but it's about you and the person sitting near you. The believers that you congregate every day together with, you together are a people that God uses. And, and the phrase that's used here is used in ancient times as something unique that's set aside for specifically for the king. Like everything in the kingdom belongs to the king, but there are some things like his private yacht or maybe his house on the beach, you know, Martha's Vineyard. There's something that is really prized by him. It's something that he uses. It's his special relationship kind of thing. And I think this is a beautiful picture for us this morning because sometimes you feel like maybe God just made this contractual obligation with you when you said that prayer and you believed in him. And even though you screw up now, like, God is just like, he's obligated to love us because he said he would and he can't go back on his word. Like, that's where we are with God. But instead, the picture that Peter paints here is that you are beloved. Well, you're a possession that brings God joy. We're owned for his pleasure. We're preserved and we're kept by him. So why are we this way? Well, notice not just your identity, but your purpose. Your purpose, according to Peter, is of proclamation that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Peter, is, again, is probably alluding to Isaiah 43 here, where it says that God has formed Israel for himself that they could recount his praises. So, so what does Peter mean here when he says proclamation? Okay, well, well, first off, proclamation means worship. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what the the Westminster Confession says, right? This is the state of our hearts. You and I were made for worship. We were created to proclaim the excellencies of him who made us. This is something we do both personally and corporately. When Doxa comes together, you worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's more than just a routine Sunday morning thing that we do. Like we're warming up for real worship and the preaching of God's word. So we're going to say a few things about God that's really nice. No, what we're doing here is what we'll be doing forever. That's what Revelation says. The the lamb came in and worthy is the lamb to receive honor and blessing and glory and might now and forevermore. And all the people fell down and they worshiped. And that is what you and I will get to do in a more full and real way than we ever could before. If you can't sing now, you will then. Like you will worship the king of kings because you were made to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Witness is also what proclamation means. The call of our proclamation goes beyond the confines of this wall and the times we meet together in a small group in our house. God's glory demands that it's proclaimed not just to people who believe in him, but to the glory of all the nations because he's gathering people for himself from them. This is who we are. We're proclaiming. Okay, well, what are we proclaiming? Notice our message that he gives Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So the first thing you're proclaiming is the excellencies of God. Who can count or number the excellencies of God? I I love this. H.B. Charles says that you and I are engaged in kingdom propaganda. You know what propaganda is? like... You're like changing people's mind by showing them something that you're like, yes, I have to be a part of that because it's amazing. Like that's what you and I are doing. And here's the reality. When you and I come together to worship and when we speak to our friends, the content of our proclamation is not a repeating of things they already hear. You and I don't need to be a sounding board for ESPN or CNN or Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or whatever else it is that you talk about. You and I and our neighbors are not proclaimers of television shows, entertainers, or musicians. I'm not a weatherman. Our neighbors don't need that. What the world around you most desperately needs is a fresh reminder of the character of God. They need to know that he is the omnipotent creator of the whole earth. The universe was made by the power of his word. They need to know that they were made in his image for his glory. And yet they sin against the holy God. And that he is omniscient in his ways. He knows all things. He's omnipotent in his power. There is no ending of his strength. He's holy in his nature. He can't allow sin into his presence. And if he's ultimately loving, he has to be ultimately just and punish the sins that they have committed and I have committed and you have committed day after day after day after day. And the just judge of the earth will do right. But bad news points to good news because he's perfect in his love as well. He's merciful and long-suffering. He is gentle and lowly with sinners. He's entreating them to come to him. And this is the message that we are to be proclaiming. Not the who won the NCAA tournament this weekend. Not what the weather's been like lately and how that political guy is in trouble again. Like, they don't need more conversations about that. They hear about that pretty regularly. They need to hear about the glories of God. And we do this because... We are people who have been called out of darkness and into marvelous light. That darkness is the description of our our condition apart from Christ. John in chapter 3, when Nicodemus comes to him, he tells Nicodemus, this is the judgment that light came into the world and men love darkness rather than light. For their deeds were evil, and everyone who is evil hates the light. It doesn't come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's who we were. That's who Ephesians proclaims us to be. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You walked according to the lust of your flesh. You fulfilled the desires of the flesh, both in the heart and the mind. And you were, by nature, children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, who is rich in mercy... He called us out of darkness into marvelous light. What, what's so marvelous about this light? Well, it's marvelous because of its source. It's it's divine in nature. It's a message that only Christ could proclaim to us. You and I couldn't do this on our own. Its its strength is divine and marvelous because it's saving and it's purifying and it's constantly in work in us to make us more in His image. It's guiding. It's eternal. It's strong and it's true. The central focus of the excellencies of God are found in the gospel. And we see that as he proclaims the rest of that statement there. We are God's people by God's mercy. He says in verse 10, you were once not a people, but now you're God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is actually a quote from the prophet Hosea. You remember that dude, right, in the Old Testament? His life's a little weird. He's a prophet of God, and God's like, hey, dude, you know what I think would be an amazing visual aid for people to think about my relationship with them? I think it'd be great if you go marry a prostitute. Like, that's God's command to him. Hey, proclaim the gospel by going and marrying this girl named Homer, which should already raise some red flags. Gomer is his wife, right? They go and... This living illustration of his life, his wife is unfaithful to him. And he's trying to proclaim to the people the way that they are being unfaithful to God. And in chapter 1, he and his wife, they have a kid. And God tells Hosea to give her a really strange name. It says in verse 6, she conceived, gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said, name her Lorahemi, or I, for I will no longer have compassion on their house. Yeah, your daughter, her name's No Compassion. That, that's a character, you know, thing that we really want to install in our kids. No. This is this is her name. She's walking around, people are like, oh, what's your kid's name? No compassion from the Lord. That's a little intense. <laughs> okay. And, and then he has another kid. And and the Lord says, name Lo am I, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Oh, what's your second kid? Not my people. And God ends chapter one in the beginning of two that because of Israel's sin, this is their new status. You were my special chosen people, the one I brought out of Egypt, the one I gave my law to, the one I put in the promised land, the one I provided for this whole time. And now you're not my people. And now I don't have compassion for you. I have showed you again and again and again and again and again you decided to walk away from me. They wanted the status of a husband without the relationship faithfulness of a wife. And God said this is going to bring his wrath on them and they will no longer receive his mercy and they will no longer be called his people. But check out God's amazing mercy and love in verse 14 of chapter one, or of chapter two. God with Israel like us, when he sees us sinners, as far off, he initiates relationship. He says, in the future, I will allure her. I will woo her to me. And 18, at that time, I will make a covenant. In verse 19, I will commit myself to you forever, and I will commit myself to you in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love. Something that's not moving or changing based on your performance. In tender compassion. And I will commit myself to you in faithfulness and acknowledge the Lord. That's what you're gonna do. It will come about in that day I will respond. In the midst of your unfaithfulness, I will be faithful. And I will plant her as my own in the land. And here's where he gets that verse from, verse 23 of chapter 2. I will have pity on no pity. And I will say to not my people, you are my people and I am your God. It's his mercy, not our merits, that make us who we are. The excellencies of God are most clearly seen in his mercy on the cross. In the backdrop of the ugliness of our hearts. Christ did not count his position of authority, his godness as something to be held onto and grasped to bring down wrath. But Paul says in Philippians 2 that he took on himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And that is why God has greatly exalted him. And he's given him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue can confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God forever. That is the proclamation that we make. So now we know why we do what we do and we know what we're supposed to be doing, but how that's supposed to happen sometimes is a little fuzzy. So Peter shows us our mission. He says, here's what you need to do. I urge you, verse 11, as sojourners in exiles, here's that idea, your citizenship's not in heaven, you're eagerly awaiting your Savior. Have this inward focus. I urge you, first off, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your souls. The reality this morning is the greatest foe to your sanctification is sitting in the same seat as you. The lust of your heart are uncontained. This idea is not limited to the idea of sexual immorality, but rather rather it encompasses the evils of humanity 's sinful nature. The apostle Paul warns us in Galatians chapter five that the deeds of the flesh are evident immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputing, dissensions, fractions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And if that's not enough, things like these. You see, the reality is that you and I are in a constant war against our own flesh. We have this sin nature that pulls us away, and yet God in his graciousness gives more grace. The Puritan once said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. We have a need this morning for us not just to skip along life and think, I got saved, now I'm just going to do me, and eventually everything's going to be good. I got grace for everything that we do. That's true. You have grace. But Paul and Jesus and everyone else in Scripture command you, fight against sin. Have this about you. Don't look at yourself as... Good and never having to worry about it. That's why people fall away. They don't endure to the end. Paul says, I hope not to become a castaway. The author of Hebrews says, make your calling and election sure. Fight against sin in your life. You know what the lust of the flesh that you struggle with. Some of you it's anger, some of you it's sexual desires, some of you it's envious, some of you it's whatever it is for you, what the Holy Spirit is rewarding you with knowing about, fight against that sin. Have an inward focus, but also have an outward focus. He says in verse 12, I urge you to, you know, do this with that, but also to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Do your neighbors, the people you know in Spartanburg, your family members, do they know you're a believer? Is there enough workings in the outward way that you live your life to convict you of that if you were to be arrested for it? The the way or the conduct of your living, the lifestyle that you live, should proclaim an inward reality in an outward way. The way that you care for the poor of your community reflects what's actually going on in your heart. The kindness that you have in your marriage will actually reflect what you believe about God. And this is what Peter's going to go on to do. For the next several chapters, Peter's going to be like, yeah, um, so about governors and people in power of civil authority, yeah, make sure you do it this way because you need to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Hey, slaves, masters, employees, peeps, like the way you live your life in this relationship reflects whether or not you have a relationship with Christ. Hey, likewise, wives and you husbands and the way that you're doing things. And this is going to, they children, like all the relationships that you have in an outward way are reflecting an inward reality. So he says, when you live that way, make sure that you're doing this. Why? Because people are looking to attack you, verse 12, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, like they're like, hey, that guy, he's evil, he's a Christian, let me tell you about it. When you do that, your deeds are so obvious to everyone around you that the only thing that they could do is glorify God. You are an evangelist by the way that you live and the way that you speak. The purpose of who I am is to be someone who is created by God, who reflects the excellencies of God. So what do we take away from this this morning? Well, first off, the question still remains, who are you? I mean, maybe as you sat there this morning, none of this really feels like it applies to you because you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You've never really realized your maybe own sinfulness or never really thought that God is going to punish you for it. Maybe, maybe God, he's just that really nice guy who's going to let everybody in at the end. But that's not who God proclaims himself to be. Your righteousness, Isaiah said, are like filthy rags in the, in the sight of God. Paul says that it's not by works of righteousness that we've done, but it's by his mercy that he saves us. And so this morning, maybe what you need most of all is to have a real conversation with God about the state of your soul. God, I have sinned against you and I need to repent and believe. I need mercy today. Forgive me. That's what God wants from you. And if you're a believer this morning, your identity and your value is tied to Christ. I just remind you that in your battle with sin, when you fail with that, maybe this morning even feeling guilty about that thing that you just keep doing and you say, I'm never going to do it again. And then you do it again like, I'm not going to yell at my kids anymore. And then you yell at them again. I'm never going to worry about this pornography thing. And then you do it again and you're striving over and over and you're crushed by the weight of your sin. You are in Christ. And he is sufficient and your hurts in this life, the betrayals that you feel, you are in Christ and he is sufficient. In your lack or in your financial need when it doesn't seem like you're going to make it, you are in Christ and his grace is sufficient. And your loneliness and your isolation, you are in Christ. And he is sufficient. Christ was forsaken so that you never have to be. He was wounded. He was marked so that you could be lifted up. It's his stripes that have healed us and made us something. Our identity is not in what we do or what we own, but it is wrapped up in the perfections of Christ. So, Dr. Church, are you living out your identity? Be who you are. Be the church. Proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's pray this morning. Oh, gracious God. Your mercies are new every day. And God, we thank you that you have chosen people like us to proclaim your glory. God, we pray that if there is one here who doesn't know you this morning, they would take time to talk to one of the members here, to talk to Dave, to talk to the pastors. God, that you would put conviction in our hearts that if we haven't been living like the church, if we haven't been living like who we are, that we would change, that we would seek your mercies, and that we would turn and follow Christ. It's in your name we pray and we ask, expecting you to do. Amen. any questions about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.